0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Into the Tech of It. I am your host, Jaime Cabrera, and today we will have a conversation with Katie and Anna, which we're taking from the previous episode. And if you don't remember, and if you haven't checked it out, I recommend that you listen to the past episode because it was a very interesting conversation on social media influencers and the 2020 US election. So we will pick it up right where we left, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. second part that I was interested in too um which is like the norms that the platforms themselves have for influencers right um because as we know like the 2020 election cycle was a crazy one and uh and and i was wondering like with this increase you know in in online activism also you know thanks to you know the pandemic that has made us stay at home and maybe not be as engaged outside as possible um what are the changes that you saw in this like what how how did this like either help them or or maybe like affected them
1: Yeah, and that's one of the big questions that we have, even just like in the academic paper that we're writing right now, is that a lot of our findings, like this has obviously been a very specific moment in time. Like the 2020 election was unique for a lot of reasons, A, in the polarization, and like it was a highly controversial election season, um, which I think in a normal year would have like amplified content online as well. But you add on top of it there the fact that people are online more um, and there aren't, you know, like we had lockdowns and so traditional campaigning, canvassing, lawn signs all of that on the ground work that campaigns normally do did have to shift some and so um, I think that that definitely did increase especially it, it sounded like as the campaign season went on is like as Katie was saying like the demand for influencers went up as the campaigning season got closer to, to election day as camp- the campaign started realizing oh we've got to supplement some of these like efforts that we had that we would normally do in a very specific way influencers became like a part of that strategy.
2: Yeah. And on that note, um, because there's that A bit of a mismatch that continues between the campaign's awareness of how to use influencers and the the way influencers are mobilized we talked to some executives who were like oh in georgia they asked us a week before you know the revote to coordinate all these influencers and they were like we just can't run a campaign on that short of time you know the way that we work with all these different influencers and so there was increased demand for using influencers towards the end of the campaign Um, I think that in addition to all these other components, and I was talking about like, you know, increased time spent online, people losing their jobs and like looking to being an influencer as a way of making money. Um, There also is the point that I think overall influencers are being regarded, are being more professionalized and more legitimized, especially smaller scale influencers. So, you know, we see Twitter rolling out a program like super, you know, super follows, which allows kind of like a on platform, like way to monetize your influence. If you're a certain level of influencer, um, you know, we talked to some people who said, yeah, people think Snapchat is dying, but actually Snapchat treats their influencers really well and allows for them to monetize content in different ways. And so, um, yeah. And I think, you know, we're just going to see more and more platforms realizing that a lot of their talent comes from, Or a lot of the appeal of the platforms comes from the type of content influencers are creating uh, as opposed to just normal people connecting with each other or following celebrities. But, you know, having these up and coming influencers. And so, um, Yeah. yeah, and just like the people, when we talk to different people who run campaigns, like, for example, TikTok, this is a bit of a tangent, but they talked about how on TikTok you it's it's easier to game the system to become viral like they said it's not easy but it's more clear on how to become viral and reach way more people because of the way that TikTok algorithm works as opposed to instagram they're like on TikTok, if you if you have a hundred thousand followers you can get to a million views on a video if you kind of tap into the right new trend and you're you're you know and, and you can also um you know spread your money around multiple people who might seem like they're about to go viral Uh, where on Instagram, it's very unlikely that you're going to go viral on that scale overnight. And so, yeah, there's also the appeal of like different types of platforms and how they can be used um, depending on what the goals of the campaign are.
1: Yeah. And I think also another like, no, you, you brought it up, Jaime, but like, Within the 20, like outside of the 2020 election, there was also an increase in social causes that were going on that were moving online. And there was a lot of political active, active, uh, activism. And like we did hear from some of the influencer execs that they felt as if Instagram was becoming a, a new platform p- for political conversations and that that type of content was becoming more normalized, just um, something that they hadn't seen a lot beforehand. Um, but there was, I think a lot of that is also to do that, like not only were influencers posting content in support of certain causes, but there was also now calls from their followers demanding that they start to post that type of content that they kept their followerships um and one of them described it as kind of like you know um during like black lives matter posting the black square on instagram almost became like a cost of doing business like for an influencer is that that was now like something that they needed to do so that their audience would continue to support them so that they knew where they stood um so I think that that's like kind of unique and and also something that will be interesting to see how some of those like the normalization of political content and I'm not saying mm-hmm. like that activism is always like political explicitly but like just certain types of content are becoming a little bit more normalized um, mm-hmm. and certain political conversations or things that are controversial or have been seen co- as controversial are now starting to pop up in places that they didn't before. Mm-hmm.
0: So then, like. Even the audience and and so everyday users are expecting these influencers to engage in this kind of like discourse is that right
2: yeah well one thing that's interesting and we've talked a lot of and i've talked a lot about this is of course like instagram influencers or any type of influencer Mm -hmm. they are relying on the engagement of their followers and that's how they kind of perhaps consciously or subconsciously steer the content that they're making And so another way these influencers can be shaped as opposed to just top down or mutually coordinating through collectives or engagement pods is also through bottom up influence by the followers. So Mm -hmm. one group we were observing during the summer before a lot of QAnon content was removed was how QAnon, which is a a traditionally very highly engaged online population, um, was engaging with followers. Instagrammers who originally weren't posting QAnon content, but then started posting kind of save the children or stuff that was adjacent, um, and looking to see how their followership increased along with that increase of that type of content. And so we weren't able to dive as deeply as we wanted to into that because so much content was removed, um, due to the restrictions from Facebook. Um, but through kind of the preliminary studies we did, there seemed to be a correlation, uh, Which brings us to, you know, another important point, which was um, that, you know, one other trend that comes from these influencers is that influencers can help a candidate usurp the traditional process. So... Instead of going to become a prominently known like community leader, business leader, and then going through government and then doing town halls, instead they have already this pre existing base of influencers who are hyping up this person. And then a funder will see that and say, wow, they already have traction. So they start giving them money, which helps them get more influence. And they can use those influencers as a megaphone to spread their messaging without ever having to do a debate or a town hall, like I mentioned. And so it's a way for new candidates to emerge and come onto the scene who aren't following the traditional process, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but then there's also the point of that they are more beholden to their followers. So one influencer executive we spoke to, um, talked about how stop the steal was a bit like that, where there was a lot of followers in, you know, people who are just had minor followings talking about this conspiracy and they're, Building more and more attention, and they kept kind of tapping into these these lead politicians saying like, you know, validate us, validate us. And then finally a lead politician would say, oh yeah, this this election was stolen. And then all of a sudden they get this influx of in response and engagement from people who believe that. And the people who are originally spreading those ideas also get an influx of followers and engagement. So it kind of shows how, as opposed to using, as opposed to pushing political messaging from the top down, mm-hmm. it can also come from the bottom up and can shape overall political discourse.
0: So this is this a new way of like the way that we see, you know, I guess politics, like, is this just like a new way or is this more pronounced that we see it like online or, or on our everyday, like social apps? Because I'm curious to know, like, you know, to what to what extent, like, this could have happened without the help of social media, you know, like, as you said, like, we always had, like, you know, community leaders, pastors, like other people who are involved. Um, but like, has, has this been always a way to, like, engage with people or social media is just making it, as you said, easier for people to bypass that, but at the same time. Is it helping our our democratic process or not? I, I know that's a super loaded question, but uh, it just it just gets it gets me thinking, you know, like, it okay, ideally you would want people to be, to make it easy for people to engage in the democratic process. But then, and then you get to the question like, in which way companies like, you know, social media companies are the right way to do it as opposed to, you know, get out there and do a town hall, get out there and, and work for your community, right?
1: Yeah. Um, that's one of like you know the big questions of the whole project that we've done is like what does this actually mean and the like it it's complicated and it's murky like mm-hmm. um, I think one of the interviews that we had pretty early on was talking about the fact that there have always been influencers. Like we have always had people who have an outsized platform to influence people's opinions when it comes to political messaging. And so that could sometimes be like a TV celebrity or a traditional celebrity or a musician or or whatever. Like, But we have seen a shift into this world of like online influencers and non-traditional celebrities. Um, but one of the questions that that interviewee asked us was like what is it about like specifically the online and digital space that makes it concerning for us like what's the thing that makes it uncomfortable and one of the things that that may be playing a a part in this is the is the scale like the ability to touch so many people with one post or like in like this specific type of way and maybe leveraging on some of that trust that they've built over time um and that's part of where like disclosure, I think, comes in is that, like, to a large degree, it's not super regulated. There's not really clear-cut rules about when campaigns really have to disclose. Um, And in a (laughs) a large uh, degree from our findings, we found that political campaigns and influencer executives are the gatekeepers in the space right now. And we're kind of relying on them to, you know, like hold the line of actually disclosing when they're supposed to be and making sure that they're doing everything above the board. Um, but that leaves a lot of gray area. Cause um, as we know, like from other countries and probably within the U S that, that we aren't seeing yet is that like, there are bad actors and there's a lot of opportunity for the whole process to be manipulated or I don't
2: know, from the outside, we, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, all, you know, I agree with all of that. And then also, you know, just continued as and I was saying, like lack of clarity around online political ads, like the Honest Ads Act still hasn't passed. Like we don't have required disclosure at a federal level for people who are even paying for political ads online, uh, despite the role that they have paid, played in 2016, 2018, 2020 And one person we interviewed spoke about uh, how he was approached by a representative from the Turkish government to mobilize American influencers to shape Turkish opinion uh, or uh, American opinion of Turkey. Um, And this influencer executive said, oh, I know about what's happening in Turkey. So because he wouldn't disclose directly where his money was coming from, I said I wouldn't work with him. But he said, I don't know if he went to go work with another influencer executive who didn't have that. You know, background on what's happening in Turkey, or wasn't as scrupulous about sourcing where the money is coming from. and okay. so using these influencers does allow for you know uh, dark money and foreign influence to come into the political sphere in a more effective way through these trusted messengers
0: okay yeah so so the lack of regulation right now is just creating these actors to play in kind of like an honor code right like essentially you decide like it depends on on whatever you consider your values to uh, because there is no regulation uh that can shape it right
1: right and there's you know like our online ad uh, rules have not been updated i think the last time that they were really updated was 2006 mm-hmm. uh with the FEC. um and to make so like even the little the limited amount of like what is defined as a, oh my god what is the term electioneering online Okay. Um, even within that limited scope like for the people that are violating those rules the fec has gone in and out of quorum which they need to enforce anything change any rules enforce fines give people a penalty if they break the rules they can't do any of that like if they don't have a quorum to vote on it and throughout the Trump presidency for a large amount of the time, there was not a quorum on the FEC. And so going and going into the 2020 election, there was not a quorum for the majority of the years leading up to the, to the actual uh, campaign season. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of got like this situation of like, there aren't rules, but even if there were rules, like we've also got other issues where those rules wouldn't even be enforceable right now. And Mm so, you know, like the question of like, how do you fix it? How do you regulate it? Is like, very sticky as well
0: Mm -hmm.
1: like that's that's a big question
0: (laughs) well and this and this regulation because it's it's very amazing to see that you know the topic such that we think that it might not be as influential which is influencers (laughs) um that it actually touches on different aspects of policy right we're talking about you know election policy we're talking about um a fiscal policy as well um because you know wh- who's getting paid and are they paying taxes on that money and and what kind of you getting paid like is it different when you get a uh you know like a gift as opposed to just like cash right uh but at the same time uh you know it the influencers aspect not the elections aspect of it but you know we saw all this trend on you know misinformation about uh vaccines and 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 all this stuff right and that touches on health policy as well but it's also influencers who i mean i'm not i don't know because i haven't seen research on whether or not they're getting paid or, or like for spreading this content but at the same time these are people with large like followings right who can shape opinion and uh and as we saw like the only ones who are kind of like left struggling to regulate our platforms but only for economic reasons um, or you know business reasons not in, in the interest of like you know following the law because there are no regulations yet um so I want to talk a little bit about just like to, to finish this conversation uh consequences because the, the large amount of, of your research was done before the january 6 insurrection at the capitol right so so you got to see all this content on q and you got to see all this content also in vaccine hesitancy right but then we had a, a, a an event that essentially like made everyone kind of like change and like shift gears a little bit um what's like how did these consequences shape the way like influences are being used or used by companies or um or political campaigns?
2: Well, that's a really good question. There's the mass deplatforming of conservative voices or you know, people who are in support of Donald Trump and in support of January sixth.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so that has shaped the influencer space because it's led to much a far greater emphasis on decentralizing you know, the network. So there's okay. alternative platforms have gained in popularity enormously. So, you know, like MeWe and Rumble and different parts of, of course, Telegram channels have gotten much more popular. Um, and so now there's these kind of influencers who are in these more niche alternative spaces where there isn't regulation of information. And the main platforms are still very popular because that's where you can Depending on your goals, reach a wider audience, and then they can be pulled into these alternative platforms. um, You know, to use like QAnon speak, that would be red pilling, and to convince people, you know, to start giving people little bits of information to cause them to diverge, and just overall, just from what we were previously talking about in this, and the broader kind of global rise in distrust and expertise it's also caught and you know around covid and different health crises and that does correlate with the rise of influencers who not always have training in certain areas that they're speaking on and unlike you know journalists in a lot of cases but are trusted i keep saying trusted messengers but that is like their main appeal um you know, who are trusted and are, are giving their opinions on different types of topics, which isn't bad, but they they're regarded as experts. Um, and that's also something just to go back to QAnon that we've seen where it's the major distrust and, you know, fake news media. But there are QAnon journalists who go and do this like research that they they term research where they go and dig through all these different, you know, leaked emails and all these things. And then they are spokesperson's saying, oh, this is what this really means. This is all the data I have. This is the research that I've used. Um, So it's kind of this interesting. Influencers have allowed for a change in what is regarded as expertise. And of course, who is given the megaphone or the mouthpiece to be regarded as an expert yeah, and I
1: think that yeah, That is like a big part of like, I don't think that you can remove influencers and their voices from like the new media system. And like the fact that, you know, we young people do get a fair amount of their news and information from social media platforms now. And we have to be paying attention to what voices they're paying attention to and the types of content that they're encountering. Um, and when that content comes with the added bonus of being received as if it was coming from a friend or a family member and there's that level of trust with it, then the consequences are greater. So um, yeah, I think that I don't, I have no idea like what that's gonna mean moving forward, especially post Capitol riot stuff, um, because I think that we're, it, this is gonna be something that we're gonna have to watch for a while um, and I went on is definitely Alive and with us, and is going to change a lot in, in the next few years. So it will, it will be interesting. and
0: yeah. so, and, and, and I agree because uh, unfortunately the QAnon thing was not new and was actually you know declared by DHS as a threat to national security long before uh, the insurrection happened, but. And while I was thinking just, I was trying to put myself in the shoes of an influencer, right. And then think, you know, and you mentioned like some of them were trying these hashtags to see how their content was performing. Um, but it can also be potentially dangerous because if it performs well, they're just going to keep doing it. Right. So with this type of consequences, when you see, you know, like people actually being, you know, trialed because of what they did or what they said, or just simply the platform, as you were saying, uh, could we be expecting maybe like more like self-regulation by by, uh, influencers and saying, I don't want to mess with this type of content. I'm not going to talk about it. Or is it just going to be like, well, it happened with them, but it's not going to happen with me because I just want to get followers and maybe make money from this.
2: You know, yeah. oh, I was just going to clarify really quick when I said earlier, like people saying "save the children" and trying that hashtag. Mm-hmm. I don't know if a lot of people are consciously doing that to increase their followers. I think okay. it's people because QAnon has such a wide umbrella mm-hmm. that people are saying, like, "Oh, I care about children. I'm the mother," uh, you know, and then they want to talk about that topic, but they might not necessarily be fully aware of how it's connected to a broader narrative. But uh, yeah. yeah, I just wanted to clarify Thank that. So go ahead, Anna.
1: The signal boosting part of QAnon is interesting right. basically that if they see somebody who's getting you know attacked or is posting positive QAnon content they will like write in with a cavalry and support that content amplify it and so it does kind of create an incentive system um yeah. but what I was going to say is that one of the one of the things that we heard from some conservative influencers that we spoke with during our interviews was there is already a sense of um censorship that they believe is happening on the platforms which you know i real or imagined i am I'm not the one to say but there's you know like there's a lot of talk of shadow banning and like having their content deprioritized and it being harder for them to go viral or to get the views and likes or the free get onto the for you page on tiktok um but i i think that and i have actually i've taken a look at some of the hype house content since the Capitol riots um I'm interesting that things are happening there. Some of those platforms have just gone through some shifts and kind of started over. And so that's an interesting question of like, we're not positive why that happened. Um, But the other thing that I have seen some of those creators do is that they'll talk about like censoring themselves or not talking about a specific type of content, but almost in like a mocking way. And it's kind of become like a... it, it. I don't know, it's like this like self-imposing or like they. it feeds into like that same like system and that feeling within that group is that they'll talk about content, then it'll get removed and they'll post another post about getting removed for talking about that specific content. And so it's just kind of this weird cycle and a part of the messaging that's going on within certain, especially like far right groups.
2: Yeah, of being a big tech and big, you know, and mainstream media oppressing certain voices that are trying to share the truth and that there's even the badge of honor for being removed from all these different platforms. And another trend that's emerging is, you know, if we're talking about all... Uh, you know, far right or extremist content is the creation of infrastructure that can support these alternative platforms so that they're not going to be, you know, uh, not serviced by Amazon Web Services, but starting to create more of the infrastructure that underlies these decentralized platforms so that there is no mode of deplatforming. But that doesn't mean that deplatforming hasn't worked like uh, it definitely has Mm -hmm. decreased the the type amount of extremist content on these mainstream platforms. And that is important for, you know, decreasing the number of people who are drawn further into these extreme rabbit holes.
0: Mm -hmm. And then, and I guess, you know, to wrap it up, I, I would I would think that platforms are now focusing on not just the biggest names and not just the blue check marks, but also the smaller scale, which is essentially what you're arguing for. You know, like the, like these people are effective in their messaging. They're actually being like sought for uh, by political campaigns and other and brands as well. Um, could we like be expecting also this to be like, you know, platforms and, and, and big social media companies to... Focus on a different way to like handle their influencers, micro influencers, nan- nano influencers, or do you think they're just going to be waiting until the, the next the next big problem, the next insurrection, to be like to actually do something about it?
2: Well, it's hard to say what the platforms are doing. I mean, uh, like we mentioned earlier, there is a move towards allowing influencers to gain monetary income from their influence mm-hmm. and kind of getting uh, giving perks for influencers wanting to stay on certain platforms. Uh, but the companies are aware also of small scale influencers. Like we've spoken to different groups and um, I'm sure they've been noticing them through their own mm-hmm. observation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I mean, like, I think that it's like clear cut when you have like a, something like QAnon that, you know, has very just like clear like hashtags and like content types and things that mm-hmm. the platforms go through when they're de But in terms of like paying attention to political influencers and cracking down on a bunch of different types of messaging, I think that um, it, it will take a while. But
0: So it's a bigger challenge to try to regulate in the, you know, political sphere than than something that's more like clear as QAnon or like maybe vaccine hesitancy, which is just easier to just straight up say, hey, you cannot pause this content because it's not um, it's not proven or something like that. But when it comes to an opinion, especially a, a, the opinion of a real person, not a bot, a real person mm-hmm. uh, with a following and people who agree with them, that's gonna be harder, right? For for platforms to just like try to regulate or avoid. To be yeah, there. and I
1: mean I think if people have questions about whether we do want platforms to be the ones deciding if they're regulating this type of speech, you know? And and unfortunately it's like I know that that is the argument that's been used to defend not regulating anything, but mm-hmm. like we do have legitimate concerns about free speech issues in this country mm-hmm. and so you know, like who's drawing the line. And I think that that's where some of the regulatory bodies, you know, like could step up and do something about some of this, like at least setting the rules of what, what the platforms would need to enforce. instead of, of us leaving all of the gatekeeping up to the individual platforms themselves because they're businesses. And, you know, they also benefit a lot from their creator content. So.
0: Yeah, they have different interests. No, that's, and I think that's a good way to end this podcast because uh, I do believe that people who are going to listen to this episode, um, I do hope that they start thinking, well, like, how are we going to prevent this uh, aspiring policymakers, for example, like, should we do something to make uh, government, government more effective in regulating this space, right? You know, we don't want just years and years to pass when this is no longer an issue. And then, you know, guess what? All the damage is done. And then now you introduce a bill that is probably not going to do much because that now there's a new thing, right? Or also, you know, the, I, I would also encourage people to look into the private sector and, and the policy work that they're doing and see well well there's also you might not want companies to be the ones regulating but you also want uh some immediate change in order to prevent like a bigger damage right well i really appreciate the time of you too it's been wonderful i I always love like just the chats that that we have and i'm glad that now the people listening to the podcast are gonna get like this feeling of you know just learning new things learning about uh things that we use every day which is just social media but at the same time a uh, bigger policy implications that uh we can like we as you know like younger generations although maybe not that young but young in the <laughs> young in the field uh we can start like doing something so that we can prevent like uh bad actors from exploiting these type of like things and 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 you know protecting also the population in general as well i really appreciate your time Thank you so much and uh well i guess i hope we can get some like some other topic going on later on if you guys are willing to and enjoyed being in this podcast as well
2: <laughs> yeah thanks so much Jaime we'd love to talk to you anytime
1: yeah this has been great
0: appreciate you having us. <laughs> Hope you enjoy this conversation with katie and anna i think what they bring to the table with their research on social media influencers and the elections is fascinating uh the way in which uh, micro influencers are now a bigger part of uh, a campaign's tactic to win an election so it's going to be interesting to see their academic pa- paper when it comes out and moving forward uh also just like for, uh continuing this research i think is going to be fascinating i do hope you enjoy this conversation thank you for listening This podcast is sponsored by the Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas at Austin. This project is part of the Bromley Fellowship which provides research training and mentorship opportunities to graduate students of the University of Texas, aiming to involve students in international affairs early in their career, to prepare the next generation of leaders to help develop solutions to the most pressing public policy challenges. I am Jaime Cabrera and thank you for getting into the tech of it.